Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Recycle by Eurosport, the most compelling, the most controversial and the most memorable riders and races in cycling history. Written by Felix Lowe and narrated by me, Graham Wilgos. Last time out, we cut loose with France's Jackie Durand, who defied all the odds by winning the 1992 Tour of Flanders with a break that lasted an astonishing 217 kilometres. There's a fraternal feel to this episode as we go back to the 1921 Paris-Roubaix, won by Henri Pellissier ahead of his brother Francis. It remains the first and only time in cycling history that brothers have finished on the top two steps of the podium in one of cycling's fabled monuments. Set against the backdrop of renewal and recovery after the destruction of the First World War, the Pellissiers pulled off a famous 1-2 in Roubaix in spite of a bounty on their heads for trying to break away from La Sportive the suffocating consortium that then governed the sport. Over ravaged roads and land destroyed by almost five years of war, Henri Pellissier had already won the race's 1919 edition. The 1921 race was far from the most vintage version of what soon became known as the Hell of the North. But the subplot of Henri Pellissier's eternal spat with the authorities who ran his sport added extra piquancy to proceedings, spiced up even further by the fact that Francis joined him on a final podium that didn't so much rock the boat as provide the iceberg that sunk La Sportive's Titanic. Cycling history is peppered with familial dynasties and fraternal combinations, Simon and Adam Yates being the most recent example. Maurice Garin, the first man to win the Tour and a double Paris-Roubaix winner, had two brothers, Ambroise and César, who both finished runner-up in Roubaix, while the first victor of the Vuelta España, the Belgian Gustave Delors, returned the next year to double up ahead of his brother, Alphonse. Also in the Vuelta, brothers Emilio and Manuel Rodriguez came first and second in 1950, five years after their older brother, Delio, won the first post-war edition, with a fourth brother, Pastor, finishing 15th. More recently, Luxembourg brothers Frank and Andy Schleck finished behind Cadell Evans on the 2011 tour podium. Today's world tour boasts six sets of brothers, including the Itzagires, Jon and Gorka, while the likes of Nairo Quintana, Vincenzo Nibali, Oliver Nason and Esteban Chavez all have younger brothers in the sport. Some of cycling's biggest names have relied on a brother as their most loyal domestique, Miguel Indurain may not have won five tours without the calming presence of his younger brother, Prudencio. 
The great Fausto Coppi was a shadow of his usual campionissimo self following the death of his younger brother, Cersei, who was also the winner of Paris-Roubaix in 1949. And Peter Sagan might not have won three successive rainbow jerseys without Uri by his side. But on only one occasion have brothers finished first and second in one of cycling's five monuments, a record now stretching back 99 years to the day Henri and Francis Pellissier upset the authorities to take a face-slapping 1-2 not in the Roubaix Velodrome, because it had not been built yet, but in a nearby stadium, interrupting a football match in the process. There were four Pellissier brothers, Henri, the eldest, Francis, Jean-Francois and Charles. Jean-Francois died during the First World War, but the other three became famous cyclists, although Charles's heyday as one of the best sprinters in the peloton only briefly overlapped with his two trailblazing brothers. Their father was like a character from a Balzac novel, a cattle farmer from the Cantal region in the Auvergne who had uprooted to Paris in search of riches where he built a flourishing milk empire. Arriving in wooden clogs, old Pellissier finished up a leather-booted millionaire. He certainly looked down at his son's decision to prioritise cycling over delivering milk, viewing the humble bicycle as the work of the devil. But Henri, who left home aged 16 to pursue his dream, was a tenacious chap and forged ahead despite the wishes of his father, his early successes and escape from the daily grind acting as an inspiration to Francis, who soon swapped cattle for cycling and joined his brother in the peloton. It is said that training and nutrition set the policiers apart from their contemporaries, although their tactic was hardly revolutionary by today's standards. They simply overate before races and abstained from alcohol while riding. Cantankerous, chippy and the possessor of a centre parting of commendable rectitude, Henri was something of a trade unionist at heart. He was the first rider to stand up to the power of race organisers and equipment manufacturers and lived in a permanent state of war against anyone involved in the sport, including, at times, his fellow riders, whom he once famously described as workhorses compared to his thoroughbred. He was the Lance Armstrong of his era, in some respects, says Tom Isett, author of Riding in the Zone Rouge, the tour of the battlefields 1919, cycling's toughest ever stage race. He was a very feisty character, constantly fighting with de Grange about everything, moaning about the distance of races and about La Sportive. He could pick a fight in an empty room. Probably, that was why he was such a successful racer, because he was aggressive and not afraid to wade in and do his thing. This argumentative and hot-tempered streak may not have washed with the public had Henri not backed it up with the fact that he was very good at his trade. As the Dutch sociologist Benjo Marzo explains in his book The Sweat of the Gods, Henri Pellissier could afford this attitude because he was not only the best, but also the most popular rider of his day, and because his stubbornness gained him even more public support. Pellissier won the Giro di Lombardia twice, Milan-Torino and Milan-San Remo before coming runner-up in the 1914 Tour de France, trailing the Belgian Philippe Tice by just 1 minute and 50 seconds, a tiny gap in those days. After the Great War put his career on hiatus as he swapped bike for bayonet, Henri Pellissier flew back into the fold from service in an aviation division to win Paris-Roubaix in 1919 in a race that covered entire landscapes still blown to smithereens. Such conditions saw the race earn the soubriquet the Hell of the North, as organisers visiting the area ahead of the race made the following chilling report. We enter into the centre of the battlefield. There is not a tree standing upright. Everything is flattened, not a square metre that has not been hurled upside down. 
There's one shell hole after another. The only things that stand out in this churned earth are the crosses with their ribbons in blue, white and red. It is hell. Henri Pellissier indeed described the 1919 Paris-Roubaix not as a race, but a pilgrimage. His victory notably involved climbing onto a train and hopping out the other side after the stationary locomotive blocked his way with compatriot Honor Barthélemy and that man Tice breathing down his neck. His brother Francis came sixth that day, before both policiers took to the start of the Tour de France. Henri won the second stage ahead of Francis before the roles reversed and Francis, in his first year as a pro, won stage three ahead of Henri. Neither brother completed the race. In fact, although Henri had come runner-up in 1914, he entered the 1921 season having failed to finish four of his five tours. The Great War tore through Europe and left cycling in disarray. The policiers lost their brother Jean-Francois, and many champions did not survive the hostilities. Among those to lose their lives were Tour de France winners Lucien Petit-Breton, Francois Faber and Octave Lapise. The latter also a triple winner of Paris-Roubaix in 1909, 1910 and 1911. Many bicycle factories that sponsored cycling teams in the early 20th century had suffered or been destroyed during the war. With little money in the coffers to sponsor conventional cycling teams, the La Sportive Consortium was created to bring together the main French manufacturers, such as Alcyon, Automoto, La Française and Peugeot, with the aim of sharing the cost of equipment and rider salaries. As a result, half of the peloton was united under the banner of La Sportive, including Henri and Francis Pellissier, who had been forced to sign a two-year contract worth 300 francs per month. Although the consortium allowed them to bring home double the wage usually commanded by a skilled worker, the brothers felt hard done by and demanded that their sponsor pay them more for their services. But La Sportive, which was led by the authoritarian Alphonse Borges, a former rider and director sportive of the Peugeot team before the war, held firm. As a result, Henri approached a new frame builder, Pierre Messonnet, of the JB Louvet team, to discuss a future collaboration. When Messonnet was hesitant, Henri made the following promise. We will win you, Paris-Roubaix. The actions of Henri and Francis angered Bourges, who delivered a firm communique to his riders at Le Sportive. These two should not win a single race, and especially not Paris-Roubaix. The ball is in your court. Isid explains the fractured dynamic ahead of the 1921 race. No one was really happy with the situation that saw 140 professional riders all in one team all on identical bikes with identical tyres. It was never going to suit the policiers because they were a slight rule unto themselves. They didn't want to be part of that, thrown in with all the other La Sportive riders, so they ostensibly rode the 1921 Paris-Roubaix as isolés, single riders, even though they were still on La Sportive bikes and tyres. Caught between these two worlds, the policiers took to the start in the colours of La Sportive, but not enjoying any of the perks. As independent riders, they would be excluded from any team support. Plus, they were now marked men. The only solution was a victory, which would have won them a contract with J.B. Louvet. Otherwise, the two dissidents would find themselves unemployed and probably forced into exile in Italy. Borges was not the only authoritative figure to incur the wrath of Henri Pellissier. After winning stage two of the 1919 tour ahead of his brother, 
Pellissier, the race leader, was on the verge of quitting the tour the next day before being forced to continue by director Henri de Grange. He obeyed orders and rode back from a 45-minute deficit to finish behind Francis in the sprint for first place before making his famous comment about being a thoroughbred rider. He would have quit the race that night at the town of Morlaix in Brittany, but he didn't have enough money for his train fare back to Paris. Angry at being described as workhorses by the race leader, the remaining 23 riders ganged up on the policiers in stage four, speeding away after they stopped to change bicycles. The brothers were then reprimanded by de Grange for working together when trying to pursue the leaders. Henri lost more than 35 minutes at the finish and Francis more than three hours. To make matters worse, Henri had a further dispute with de Grange after the latter refused him an extra glass of wine at the reception following the stage. Indignant, the two brothers finally threw in their musettes. The bitter feud continued in 1920 when Henri, having won the previous two stages, was penalised two minutes for throwing away a flat inner tube illegally during stage five of the tour. He objected to the penalty and immediately stopped the race, prompting de Grange to publicly criticise his big-headedness. In a savage character assassination published in his paper Lotto, de Grange implied that Pellissier had the strength but not the moral fibre required to win the tour. Henri Pellissier is saturated with class but doesn't know how to suffer. He has a big belly when the Tour de France requires the stomach of a skinny cat, he wrote, before lampooning Pellissier for having the nervousness of a pretty woman. He is a rider with a lot of talent but who doesn't know what to do with it. He can win many competitions, but he will never appear on the glorious list of Tour winners, said de Grange. De Grange was not only director of the Tour, Paris-Roubaix was also under his jurisdiction. And when the policiers arrived without warning in his office a few days before the 1921 race to discuss their desire to break from the consortium, he listened but promptly dismissed their protestations. He vowed then and there that they would never again appear on the front page of Lotto, only to eat his words when Henri subsequently emerged as champion. The 22nd edition of Paris-Roubaix took place on Sunday, March 27, 1921. After signing on from 4.45am at the suburb of Suresne, west of the Bois de Boulogne, 140 riders departed at 6.15am. Because of the 14 km per hour speed limit in Paris, the riders soft-pedalled behind the official cars until they reached Chateau on the other side of the Seine, where they enjoyed a 15-minute break at the Café de Sport ahead of the 7.10 start. The weather was apparently ideal for racing, the roads described by Lotto as patro-mauvais, not too bad. It's also worth mentioning that all roads were cobblestone or grit back in those days, so there were no specific sectors of Parve like we see in the Hell of the North today. By the time the riders arrived for a pit stop at the Café de la Terrasse in Pontoise, 33 kilometres into the 270-kilometre race, the peloton had already shed around 40 bodies. There soon followed the incident involving the train. As reported the next day by Lotto, a driver who certainly had no sporting knowledge stopped his train right in the middle of the course, then proceeded to manoeuvre his locomotive very slowly. This sparked a beautiful tussle between the riders, reported the newspaper. They went everywhere, some in front of the train, some behind, some even underneath the carriages when the train finally came to a stop. But all the favourites found themselves back together within a few kilometres. The first major attack then came from Jules Massalis, who passed through Beauvais at 82 kilometres with a gap of two minutes over a 60-man peloton led by Honor Batalemi. 
At 10.25am, Marcellus' lead was up to six minutes as he passed through Bretiel, but the Palessiers combined on the front of the pack to reel in the lone leader ahead of Amiens at the halfway point. There were still 45 riders out ahead as the peloton took advantage of a two-minute neutralisation at the first feed zone. To the greatest joy of thousands of sports lovers who had come to watch the passing of our kings of the road, reported Lotto, which estimated that 10,000 spectators had come out to see the riders pass through Amiens. Entering the final 100 kilometres, the first major test of the day arrived in the form of the Côte de Doulon. This was where the first selection was traditionally made in the Roubaix of old, and it was here that the Pelissiers made their move. Just as they had agreed beforehand, Henri and Francis Pelissier upped the tempo on the climb of Doulon, riding clear with Frenchman Romain Bellinger and the informed Belgian René Vermandel, winner of the Tour of Flanders a fortnight earlier. Among those distance was Paul de Man, the defending champion. Bellinger crested the summit in pole position to pocket the 100-franc prize, half a bike length ahead of Henri Pellissier, who Francis had followed like his shadow, with Vermandel in turn on his back wheel. After the summit, they were joined by Belgians Emile Masson, Hector Thibaudien and Leon Sieur, who would go on to win the Tour de France later that year. The riders were now crossing the devastated regions where, even in 1921, the Graves Registration Units were still recovering bodies of the victims of the First World War. For a lot of them, it must have been very emotional, says Isit. Like the Pelissiers, most of the French and Belgian riders would have been under arms at some point. Aided by a tailwind, the brothers kept up a murderous pace. Bellinger and Mason were the first to drop back after puncturing before Arras, with around 70 kilometres remaining, retreating to form a chase group alongside Belgians Marcel Bursa and Tice. It was no coincidence that so many of the top riders at the time were Belgian, often the sons of farmers or agricultural hands. They were used to training on surfaces far worse than the poor excuses for roads in northern France. This made them more capable of coping with the hardships of the one-day classic races and the tour than their French counterparts, who mostly came from an urban milieu. But the bourgeois brothers were tearing up the rulebook that day. On dry country roads throwing up dust and causing many riders to puncture, their pace had Thibaudien, Vermandel and Sieur struggling in their wake, and regularly blinded by the effort of holding wheel. Vermandel seemed to be the only one capable of handling the Pelissiers, who took turns trying to swat away the last man who stood between them and a priceless one-two. The pace was so high that the leaders were half an hour ahead of schedule, just 25 kilometres from the finish. With Vermandel on the ropes, he tried to strike a deal with the brothers in which they would cease hostilities and leave things to the final sprint, which Henri, as the best sprinter, would inevitably win. But the pugnacious Pelissiers were proud souls. They didn't want to take any undue risks and refused. Eventually, with eight kilometres remaining and after a softening attack by his brother, Henri made his move with a decisive attack on the Hem climb. A report the next day in Lotto describes how the final kilometres of the race played out. The epilogue of the drama was rapid and poignant. In the middle of an immense crowd through a thick cloud of cars and spectators, Henri Pellissier powerfully pulled clear on the small cobbled climb of Hem. In the blink of an eye, Henri had a gap of 50 metres. Francis dug deep behind in pursuit, but, unfortunately, he almost immediately saw his tyre give up the ghost. Vermandel darted off in turn in pursuit of the escapee, but 50 metres later, his tyres too exploded. The finish in Roubaix was held at the Stade Jean Dubrul, whose 1895 cycling track had been replaced by a football pitch. 
It was not until 1943 that the concrete bowl of the now-famous Roubaix velodrome was built at a nearby site. With Pelissier approaching the stadium so far ahead of schedule, the race interrupted a football match that was expected to have been completed long before the peloton's arrival. The players, therefore, had no choice but to stop and greet the finishers. Still, they witnessed a moment of history as Pelissier crossed the line 40 seconds clear to secure his second Roubaix victory in three years. Behind him, there was a fierce duel between his brother and Vermandel, both of whom were riding on the rims following their earlier punctures, with the resurgent Sieur closing in fast. After two nail-biting laps inside the stadium, Francis Pelissier held on for second place by just two seconds as Sieur pipped his fellow Belgian Vermandel for third. Following his victory, Henri Pelissier was accosted by a journalist who asked him to share his impressions of the race. His reply was short. My eyes hurt. Is that all? Once the dust settled, Henri was just as happy with his brother's second place as he was with his own victory. His only regret was that he and Francis had not finished arm in arm. Without the puncture at the end, he lamented, we would have finished together, holding each other by the shoulder. To which a race commissioner immediately countered. Well. You must bless this puncture, for if you had crossed the line holding each other by the shoulder, I would have downgraded you both for illicit agreement in the race. In the changing rooms afterwards, Alphonse Borges, the sports director of La Sportif, was furious and severely chastised his riders for failing to defeat the policiers, whose one-two was the ultimate embarrassment to the consortium they wished to leave. And, faced with the result, Henri de Grange was forced to swallow his words. The next day, the names of the Pelissier brothers were peppered throughout eight columns in Lotto. In typical de Grange style, however, the paper did not lead with the news of Henri Pelissier's win. Neither was there a direct mention of either brother in the bold headline on the bottom right-hand side of the front page. Instead, it read, The Greyhound Triumphs, using the winner's nickname, while Pelissier was also pointedly described as the ace of La Sportive. However, the article itself pulled no punches when it came to praise the policiers in the face of the foreign coalition. Victory went to the best man of the lot over the distance, to the one they call the Greyhound of the Road, to our great Henri Pelissier, who was followed by just a few seconds by his brother Francis. The beautiful fraternal victory was very well deserved. It confirmed the general opinion that, in his current form, and in good conditions, Henri Pelissier is unbeatable over the distance of a Paris-Roubaix. The article continued, In the conditions, victory could not elude him. We wish a great bravo, then, to the winner and his brother, who has once again shown himself to be worthy of his older sibling. There were also bravos dealt out to Sieur for his remarkable courage, Vermandel, who had a superb race, and to Bellinger and Tibergian, who were simply spiffing. The latter was also later described as racing with extraordinary brio. And yet, the paper couldn't resist alluding to the consortium controversy by subtly chastising Henri the dissident from biting the hand that feeds, the winner being described as racing on a lasportive bicycle with lasportive tyres, with no mention whatsoever of J.B. Louvet. Indeed, the whole tone was that of a syrupy sycophant towards the Borge-led consortium, with the paper's final bravo offered to the great national brand of the consortium of constructors whose victory today can count among its most beautiful. Did La Sportive not occupy the first 16 places, Lotto asked, with baffling incredulity?
It must be a record of which our friend Alphonse Borges must be proud. As if to hammer home a point, the article then talked about the top riders from the Bianchi Dunlop team, Marcel Bursa and Jules Van Hevel, whom they studiously noted must have punctured at least four times. So, what happened next? A fortnight later, the Pelissier brothers were at it again at Paris Tours. In an epic race that played out under violent gusts of snow, with only eight finishers from the 64 who started, the duo zipped clear from the outset before Henri faded, leaving Francis to battle it out with Eugène Christophe and Luis Motiat for the win. The last rider came home more than four hours in arrears. With the brothers now officially outside the consortium, it was another bitter blow to La Sportive, which wound up at the end of the season as individual manufacturers returned to the fold. Still having trouble digesting de Grange's scathing criticism and not exactly welcome following their split from the consortium, neither Henri nor Francis rode the Tour de France for the next two editions. But they returned in 1923 when, nine years after finishing runner-up, Henri finally rode into Paris wearing the recently introduced yellow jersey, and by doing so, he ended 12 years of tour famine for the French. That same year, Francis finished his only tour, coming 23rd in Paris. After two national champion titles, Francis won the opening stage of the 1927 tour and wore the yellow jersey for five days before abandoning. It would be his final appearance in the race, two years after Henri, the only Frenchman to win the Tour between 1911 and 1929, made his final appearance in the race, citing the Dantesque conditions that de Grange imposed on the riders. It was something de Grange seemed to take pleasure in. A year later, in 1924, in Henri's penultimate Tour, the brothers had withdrawn over a dispute regarding jerseys. De Grange apparently had not allowed Henri to remove a layer when the sun came up following a cold and early start. That night, in a station at Coutances, the brothers gave an infamous interview in which they said they were treated like beasts in a circus, described themselves as slaves, and boasted of being forced to ride on dynamite, using all manner of substances, including cocaine, to keep awake in the saddle. It was here the legend of the convicts of the road was coined by Albert Londres, the slightly naive journalist who got the scoop. Off the back of the wave of popularity that his article elicited, Henri set up cycling's first trade union in response to de Grange's idea of standardising the contents of musettes at the feed zones. The moral, clearly, was never stand between a Frenchman and his food. But after Belgian members refused to strike at Paris tours, the union would disintegrate. Francis retired four years after Henri in 1932, but by now the fraternal focus had switched to the younger Pelissier brother, Charles, who had established himself, after a slow start, as one of the tour's best sprinters, winning a record eight stages in 1930. All three Pelissiers had ridden Paris-Roubaix together in 1926, while Charles would finish third a year later and second in 1931. In retirement, Francis became manager of the Mercier and Le Pearl teams in the 1930s, 40s and 50s, most notably nurturing the emerging talent of a certain Jacques Anquetil. Charles was the most handsome, the most popular and charming of the Pelissier brothers. He even got on well with de Grange, despite the sordid and entirely believable rumours of an affair with his wife. He was a dandy both on and off the bike who reportedly started a craze for white cycling socks. After a brilliant career, the younger of the brothers became a commentator for Radio Luxembourg before working in public relations and journalism. 
As for Henri, the future was not so kind. Having hung up his cycling shoes, his life soon spiralled out of control. In 1933, his ever-suffering wife, Leonie, could no longer face living with such an angry man and shot herself. Two years later, his new partner turned the same gun on Henri, killing him instantly. But because Pellissier was attacking her with a knife at the time, she only served a one-year suspended sentence for manslaughter. It was the perfect ending for him, says Isit. To this day, no brothers have ever repeated the achievement of Henri and Francis Pellissier by finishing first and second in Paris-Roubaix, nor, indeed, in any of cycling's monuments. It's a record that is likely never to be matched, unless, that is, the Yeatses pull off something extraordinary in Liège or Lombardia. Chaps, it's over to you. This has been another episode of Recycle by Eurosport, written by Felix Lowe and narrated by me, Graham Wilgos, produced by Pete Burton. You can find Felix on Twitter in a pair of tight green bib shorts at Saddleblaze, and you can find me at Graham Wilgos. You can also follow Eurosport on Twitter at Eurosport underscore UK, or you can catch us on Instagram and Facebook. And if you've enjoyed this or any other episode, please do subscribe, share and rate us wherever you get your podcasts. Join us for our next edition of Recycle when we're backpedalling to 2002 and Johan Museu's third Paris-Roubaix victory among the mud and the mayhem of the last rain-soaked edition of the Hell of the North. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Want truly hydrated skin? Medocia's Body Care Breakthrough Hyaluronic Body Serum. It's clinically proven to increase hydration by 161%. It's lightweight, fast-absorbing, and delivers 24 hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code SUMMER.